It is Saturday the 26th of June 2021 and the time is 4.06pm. I'm so honoured and excited to say that I am joined here today by Family Law Specialist, Solicitor Advocate, Partner at BHP Law, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee Member at Resolution Family Law and all-round social media baddie, Oluwa Palumi Amanda Adiola. For those of you who don't know, this podcast is a sort of side hobby for me because my day-to-day I am a trainee solicitor and I'm really hoping to qualify into the area of family law Um, and I actually spend a lot of my time reading about family law, listening to podcasts on this topic as well and so I first came across Amanda when I listened to a podcast by the fabulous and wonderful Sally Penny MBE and she had invited Amanda to come on to talk to her about her professional life um, and her journey through the legal world. And I must say, I listened to and clung on to every single word Amanda was saying and was just captivated by the way she spoke. Uh, Very soon after that, I somehow grasped the courage within me to DM Amanda on Instagram and ask if she'd be very kind to come onto my podcast one day. And she said yes. Soon after that, I then listened to Amanda speak at a Women in Family Law seminar where she talked about diversity and inclusion Um, but also specifically how she grasped with her own sense of identity within the workplace. Amanda, you were most definitely the star of the night. Um, And before I let you take the mic, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for not only taking time out of your weekend to speak to me, but also for the sheer amount of work and advocacy you do outside of working hours. Your social media pages are so inspiring to me as a young budding lawyer. And as you are a mother, a wife, a friend, a daughter too, it really gives me faith that women really can have it all. Now, even though I'm itching to ask you all about the law, this podcast specifically explores identity, culture, and of course, migration. I know you have a lot of gems to to drop about these topics, uh, and there is a lot to unpack here. So how about we start by you explaining to us all your beautiful name, Oluwa Palumi Amanda Adiola. Where does it originate from? What does it mean? And most importantly, what does it mean to you? Wow, that's such a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you actually plucked up the courage to message me. Um, I think there's a perception that I'm so busy and if you message me, I won't reply. I do reply. I think it's important to reply. Um, So I'm really grateful that you asked that question and beautiful pronunciation of my name as well. Well done. Oh, thank you very much. I'm going to do it with the Nigerian (laughs) accent. So my full names are Oluwapalumi Amanda Adeola. Um, Oluwapalumi stands for God is with me. My close family friends, etc., call me Palumi or they call me Lumi, which means with me or with me in whatever sense. Um, and my name is extremely important to me. When we're born in Nigeria, um, depending on your religion, uh, your parents don't sort of give you a name as soon as you're born. They would have thought about the name, but you don't actually get christened until seven days after you're born. Um, and you get loads of names. So names from grandmas, from you know your siblings, for example, um, your aunties and uncles. Um, the names could be, I mean, my son has got 13 names. That's the sort of example of the, the amount of names that you get. But we, culturally, we always give names that mean something, that will follow you through your life. So my name being God is with me, for me, that follows me through my life. Um, I am religious, but not that religious, if you see what I mean. But 
my name is extremely important because I know that whatever I do, that name follows me through in the sense that God is always with me. And I, I appreciate that about, about my name. Then in terms of your surname, it kind of comes from your sort of lineage as it were. So uh, before I got married, my surname was Adigoke, which means the crown keeps going up. So anybody called Ade that you've ever heard of, it stands for crown. And of course I got married and then it became Adeola, which means the crown of wealth. And these are just amazing names that when you dissect them, you think, wow, my name is incredible. And it does mean, you know, something great and it's powerful. So it is, you know, it, it's a cultural thing that we do in Nigeria, whereby your name must have meaning and your name kind of follows you through your life every step of the way. That's beautiful. What a beautiful meaning. Um, and yeah, and I, you can see the passion that you have for your name and, you know, what that means to you. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so I normally start these podcasts by chronologically. So, you know, we start from the beginning. Tell me about your childhood. Where, where were you born? Like, what was your childhood like? Do you have siblings? Yes, I was born in a state called Kaduna State in Nigeria. So, you know, like in the UK, you have the North, South, East and West. So my parents in Nigeria are from the South. So they speak the Nigerian language of Yoruba. Um, but I was born in the North. So I can speak Hausa, which is the other language. So there are three major languages in Nigeria, which is Yoruba, Hausa and Igbo. But there's so many other languages, but the three major ones are those three. And then obviously English being the main lingua franca, as it were. Um, so growing up in the north, I could speak the north. So it's like you being um, your parents being from London, but you've been born in Newcastle, and you can speak and you you know you you're a proper Geordie kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so I speak Hausa fluently, um, and I actually speak it better than I do Yoruba, which is very weird. And even though my parents do speak Yoruba to me, I can speak it, and I do speak to my children so that they can understand it, even though they can't really speak it as much as I do. Um, so I, I went to primary school, nursery and things like that in Nigeria. I went to, I started off secondary school there before I moved to the UK when I was a teenager. Um, moving was a massive change. Um, I think I was saying to my husband the other day, in hindsight, you don't realize that you, as a child, what you're very concerned about is I'm going to miss my friends. Why are they taking me away from my friends? You know, and, but typical African culture, you can't question what your parents are telling you, you've got to do yeah. as you're told. So as much as I was disappointed to leave my friends, now that I'm older, I see why they did it. And now I actually get it that even though I didn't quite understand it at the time, um, that I was sort of moving worlds completely from what I was used to, it was a, an, an incredible and powerful change for me. Um, and I still, like my parents still today for making that choice for us. Did, it, was that something that was was usual that, you know, families, I don't know, near from the town that you grew up would, you know, move to England or to the West, um, so to say, was that usual or was it just your family specifically? Yeah, no, it was, it was sort of a usual th thing where people send their children abroad to go and study. So mm -hmm. um, they could send their children to America, for example. So I went to like a private international school in Nigeria. So it was sort of not the norm for holidays. People will go abroad for holidays. Um, and whenever, you know, the parents decided, actually, we think you should go and study abroad, they would do that. So it wasn't 
it wasn't something that people were not used to, but I didn't think that I would go and not come back. Do you see what I mean? So I kind yeah. of thought, okay, fine, I, you might want me to go there and do college and university and maybe come back to Nigeria. But that wasn't the case. It was essentially we were moving our lives completely. And I and I had to give away all my stuff because my dad was like, well, there's no point. You're going to buy loads of new stuff over there. So don't worry about it. I mean, my parents were used to traveling. Um, you know, my mom in particular would travel um, back and forth anyways. Um, so a lot of the things would come from England and, and, and stuff, but you just didn't want to let go of your things. But yeah. it was it was a change and it was sort of sad to say goodbye to everybody. But a few years down the line, what we are so afraid of, of change in particular, you then realize the change is not so bad. And I think that has helped me a lot throughout my life, especially when I'm wanting to change jobs or make a decision about, you know, a huge step in my life. I think about, right, what is the biggest change I've ever made in my life? And did it actually harm me in any way? Um, and when I think about that, that was a huge, huge change. But I'm here now, right? What a great way of looking that, at that and then applying that to other areas of your life as well which we'll get on to in a second. But um, I just wanted to ask you about so the actual, uh, the migration part, when you moved as a teenager, how old were you? I was about 15. Okay, so yeah, 15. So you were just before GCSEs? Yeah. Yeah. So and in just before, we moved just before I did my exams. Um, but then obviously we came here and then I went back to sit my exams. Right. and then came back because there was no point in me trying to go to a secondary school here to do GCSEs because the educational system in Nigeria I have to say is very tough and I'd kind of studied a lot so I wanted to do the exams with my friends over there so yeah. I did go back did my exams came back um waited for the results and then um applied to go to college here okay so you now live in, in Newcastle is that correct no I'm in Darlington in you're north. in Darlington sorry yeah, so in not Darlington. far away from Newcastle not, not far away yeah but when you first came is it am I correct that you came to London yes East London yes yes in where sorry whereabouts in London, East London Bow Bow East London in Bow okay yeah. I was born in, in East London as well um in terms of like cultural changes now I can't even <laughs> begin to imagine like how different it must have been um were you used to London in any way had you come on holidays or were you just did, did you know what you were kind of getting yourself into <laughs> coming to yeah, London it was a massive shock, I have to say. I'll tell you this, this was the huge chocker. When we arrived, it was winter. Oh God, So yeah. imagine me being in the north of Nigeria where sometimes the, the sun could be, it could be as hot as 50 degrees, like really hot, hot. To then arrive in the UK, it was cold. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was absolutely freezing I can't remember the exact you know month or date sorry that we arrived but it was freezing and I remember that you know getting in the cab from uh, Heathrow home Jesus I couldn't wait to just yeah. get in and it's like why is it so cold um it was a shock in the sense that everything was different going to the shops was different um you know just getting on the train and buses and oh, here's the one that was even more shocking. This is gonna sound awful. Um, but in Nigeria, we don't have stable electricity. Mm. So unless you've got, uh, obviously you're well off and you can afford a generator that would, you know, you buy diesel or whatever to 
give you the electricity, um, it's not constant. So you could have it and then it could go and you could be in pitch blackness and darkness and you have to use sort of, you know, torches and candles and, and things like that. So experiencing a place where the electricity doesn't go off, <laughs> you're like, what, what, what's happening here? <laughs> you know? So that, that was a kind of surreal moment. Um, and then when I started college, that was another thing. I wondered why people referred to their lecturers by their first name. Ah, yeah. And that was a struggle for me. Was it like a different, like, like a respect thing almost? Yes. You say? Yeah. Because it was always a Mr. Whatever. Your teachers were called, whether you were a university, it was always Mr. Whatever. You didn't even call them by their first names at university. Yeah. So coming here and then having your tutors, people are calling them John, you know, Michael, and as if they're best <laughs> friends. It's like, what, 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 what's happening? Um, and I remember my sociology um, teacher at college, I, I just couldn't, and I used to call him, I, I used to call him uh, Mr. Des, because his name was Des, and he used yeah, to say, you need yeah. to stop calling me that, my name's just Des, and I'm like, mm, I can't. No, stop. <laughs> and it's difficult because I still do it till, till now. My bosses, um, Mr. Blackhead and Mr. Pratt, I cannot call them by their first names. I just yeah. can't. Other people will say Peter and John, no. It's Mr. P. I said, if you don't want me to call you Mr. Pratt, then I'll call you Mr. P. Yeah. And then Mr. Black is Mr. B. And Mrs. Pratt is Mrs. P. I'd yeah. rather do that than call you by your first name. Um, because you have to, we have that respect thing instilled in us that anybody who's older than you, you have to call them by, you know, be respectful. So you would have Mr. Whatever. And we have, of course, loads of aunties and uncles, don't we? Remember, yeah, yeah, everybody's yeah. auntie this, auntie that, even though I do draw that distinction now because I don't want my children to be confused. They need to know who their real aunties are. But yeah. everybody older than you, you can't just call them by their name. I'm laughing so much because I so I'm Indian from Indian origin and it's the same thing for us you know someone older I'm my, my friend's parents so I'm going to call them uncle and auntie I, I would never like dream of calling them by their first name <laughs> and you, you almost feel like wrong that you're doing something wrong um, <laughs> yeah, even though right. been born and brought up here it just it doesn't seem right but you know of course uh, it's just a cultural thing really um, mm -hmm. and a respect thing in a way I quite like it you know I think it's important yeah same here same here I yeah. do mind and I think that's why I found I found it quite easy at court um to refer to judges as sir and ma'am because when my mom's talking to me is yes ma'am when my dad's yes. talking to me is yes sir um yeah. I never actually say yes dad uh sometimes maybe but you know when he calls my name you're like sir you know <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> oh um so that, that's sort of the, the cultural changes that you face. Did you face any other sort of, like, did you, did you especially as a 15 year old, did you, at that time, did you face any like sort of racism or discrimination that early on or? Um, no, not until when I started college. Um, right, okay. And I think, you know, I, I, I wrote about this before that I never actually understood or realized that there would be any such sort of adverse reaction to who I am as a person. Um, and I remember we had gone um, doing lunch uh, to like a, it, it's a local pub, but you're allowed to go in there to eat as students um, because they had, they always do this offer of fish and chips or something like that. I can't even remember. 
So we'd all gone in there to get some food. My friends were eating already and I went to the bathroom. And I remember coming out and uh, a man said something uh, to me with a smile on his face. And I just smiled back thinking he was being nice. Um, <laughs> and I remember naively going back to me and my friends and I said, oh, you know, that man, he just smiled at me and he said this, what does that mean? Because I've never heard it. And of course my friends know what it meant and they got really upset went to speak to the manager to tell them what had happened but we were the ones who ended up getting kicked out saying we don't want any trouble just leave um rather than the person who actually made the derogatory comment being you know um apprehended or told not to say that um but you do have the odd i'm walking home and somebody sees me walking home you know and they decide to cross over the road or what they think i'm going to do i don't really know and you start to pick up on those little signs that there must be an issue here um, in terms of who I am rather than anything else. Because why would you see me and walk away? Why would you see me and walk faster? Why would you see me and cross the road? Um, I, I, and I struggled to get that because growing up in Nigeria, you know, there were, I'd met white people before, I'd met, you know, mixed race people in my school. Um, there was never a difference between us in that sense. And there was a lot of respect, I would say. I don't even know how to put it, whether it's the word respect. It's more, it's an indifference, regardless yeah. of the color of your skin. If you're white, you're white, fine. People treated you with kindness and respect and people loved having you, know, you around. And I didn't see any black person treating any white person that I'd seen in Nigeria in a, in a derogatory manner or in a less than respectful manner. So for yeah. me, it was very difficult to take in why that would be happening. Um, and I think it was when I started to, when I started university and I started to read more and understand about historical, you know, racism in the UK and, and things like that, that I started to get it about this being there from the jump. Uh, and, and I think that's when my mind started to work towards, well, what can we do to change that? I didn't have a lot of power then and I didn't know what to do then. And I didn't do much then, to be fair. I just wanted to go to uni, do my studies and, uh, and see. And I think that's why I'm more vocal now because I feel like I'm in a position now where I can speak on these things and try and create that ripple effect of change you know, for the next generation. Well, for us too, as we go along. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's something I definitely wanna, wanna unpack uh, with you. And we'll get to that in a second. Cause I have a few specific questions, especially about what we can do um, as lawyers, as, you know, someone as junior as me, as a trainee, um, you know, how I can use my voice and other people, you know, of my age. But before we get onto that, let's go back a bit. So, so you came here, you were 15 and you were living in East London. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, when my family first came, my, both my parents um, came from East Africa. And when they came to, to London, they settled in East London and they both felt that it was such a melting pot at that time, even now it is, but at that time, especially a lot of immigrants came over there. And so, they, as you said, there was a sort of indifference. Where, where did you go to university then? I went to, Lond well, it was called London Guildhall at the time. It's now yeah. London Metropolitan University. So yeah. still in East London. So I was, so I was at the um, 
Allgate East and Moorgate campus. Oh, great. Okay. Um, what, what do you think changed then? Like, so what was different within your like school environment then compared to like when you then went to like university or, you know, college? What, what was what was different? See, at, at college, it was diverse. I don't know whether it's because it's East London. So you don't really realise okay. that. Yeah. Um, so within the college itself, you had a mixture of black and white and Asian lecturers, a mixture of black and white and Asian students. So you didn't feel out of place because, and you didn't, you didn't notice that you were different kind of thing because we were all different and it was just fun and we all got on together. Um, when I went to university as well, it was a bit like that as well, whereby it was more diverse also, and it was a mixture and, um, but it was just certain places that you go to, that you do experience that sort of, you know, I don't know whether it's, I think it's the perception of who you are and therefore this is what you stand for that's when you experience it. So, you know, you go into um, a big shop, for example, and you're trying to do your shopping or your browsing, and you see the security guard just, you know, floating around mm -hmm. to see if you're about to take something. And I find, even till now, it sounds awful, even till now in some shops, I, I may be dressed in my suit with a nice jacket on and look smart and fabulous, and I go into a shop and I'm just browsing and you will still see the security guard just bopping his head round and just following me around. And what am I going to do? Why are you doing that? And you sort of think, well, where, where does that come from? If I'm in the shop is because I can afford to buy something there, but I may not just want anything. I may just want to kill time. I am allowed to browse. Um, but it's those little, little things that you just, pick out in certain quarters that you go to. Um, but as I say, East London for me was vibrant, was great. It was just the melting pot of communities. It was just beautiful. Going to college, I was with, you know, Asian students, black students, students from Poland, from Portugal. It was just incredible. And that, you know, you pick up little, little things. I remember my friend's um, granddad actually taught me a bit of Urdu so I could learn how to say my name. Uh -huh. <laughs> And uh, he used to. How, how to do you say your name in Urdu? Oh, well, you say Miranam Amandahe to Miranam Same in Hindi, yeah. Yeah, see? Yeah. So I didn't forget that. And that that's the little things that you pick up in terms of being able to embrace other people's cultures. And I really enjoy that. We'll go to the house and they'll teach me how to eat. You know, we'll sit down and eat with our hands and have such a laugh. And when they come to my house, we do the same. They try some Nigerian food. and. It was just so beautiful in that sense. But as you say, having that and then going to some certain areas where you feel like you're not welcome, it, it is a shock to the system. It is a shock, yeah. Now, I mean, I've never been to Darlington myself, but um, what's Darlington like in terms of do you feel or have you felt accepted? I feel at home now, I have to say. Um, yeah. The Darlington I moved to in 2006 is not the same Darlington now, 2021. When I moved here, um, and I hope nobody takes offense to this, but when I moved here, um, I, honestly, when I'm in the car, I used to do something called spot the black, just to see how many people that look like me I could see <laughs> in the car. I, I think Alex too mentioned something about, about doing that. Um, but this is a predominantly 
uh, white town. Um, and I was so wary about, you know, would I be accepted? Will people treat me in a way that is courteous or will I experience a lot of racism? Um, but I have to say, I'm truly grateful that it hasn't been as horrifying as I had it in my mind. Um, it is such a difference being in London and being in the Northeast. Everybody's so friendly. I've never known a bunch of polite people. You're walking down the street. I'll tell you this, I remember when I, I, when I got my training contract, I was walking to the office. Um, and you know, you're walking down in the morning and people are just going, morning, morning. You're like, what's going on? Why are you saying good morning to me? It's weird. Um, but that is the thing. Everybody's so, you know, friendly. They would say good morning. You, you know, you come off the bus, they'll say good morning. The shopkeeper's talking to you. They're talking to your kids and, 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 and things like that. But over the years, more and more black people have moved to Darlington. We have a good Asian community here as well. Um, some fantastic people doing some fantastic work trying to create more of, in, of an inclusive uh, space. But the reality is, because it is a majority white town, um, you have to learn to accept who you are and to not change who you are. And once I realized that, that this is it, I moved here. I yeah. can't explain in that sense that it's not diverse enough. I've got to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to make other people who want to move here who look like me or who's Asian or who's from a different culture who want to move here know that it's a welcoming place. Sure. Um, so work-wise, I found my community um, and being myself has really worked out rather than pretending to be you know, a snob or being you know, uppity or whatever. Uh, any space that I go to, I go to as my full self. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned this before, everywhere I've ever worked, people celebrate Nigerian Independence Day with me. We eat, we all wear Aww. green and white, because that is important to me. I am British, but I'm also Nigerian. And if you're accepting me, you've got to accept both sides of my culture. So yeah. There are some aspects of me that would do a lot more British things, but there are aspects of me that would do a lot of Nigerian things. I eat Nigerian food at home, I eat English food at home. Um, I like to listen to Nigerian music, but I also do like classical music as well as jazz, as well as, you know, hip hop and R&B. I'm just a melting pot of fabulousness. And it's, it's brilliant that we just embrace who we are fully. Well, you've completely answered my next question, which was how do you identify yourself? I think I that was really you. Put. Yeah, you've just answered it. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the title of this one. Um, well, then maybe let me ask you this question. You you got two small children, um, born and brought up here, I, I assume. So, how do you, how, what am I asking here? Sort of, how do you instill the Nigerian culture in them? Having, you know, for them, they're born and brought up in Darlington. Yeah. So, we obviously we speak. You're about home, yeah. um, so they understand it. They can say some words, but not, you know, not speak it fluently like we do. We, I cook Nigerian food, even though I have to reduce the spice a notch for them. <laughs> but they know the Nigerian food and they will eat it. Um, and I always remind them as well. My son in particular, he gets quite upset if anybody makes fun of his name. Um, his surname, for example, and I, I remember sitting him down and having a conversation with him about what our name, our last name actually stands for. And then next time anybody, you know, 
teases him about his name, he needs to tell them that they don't know what it means and he should tell them what it means so they know that he comes from royalty. And you could yeah. see the spark in his face when we had that conversation. So aside from teaching him about our food, about our culture and music and, and things like that, is teaching them a lot to be confident, to be brave and to be bold and to um, really embrace who they are. Uh, I think before having children, I never worried so much about uh, them experiencing racism or any form of prejudice because I'm, I'm old enough to be able to call things like that out, but I never really thought about it from a child's point of view. Um, becoming a mum, you, you think differently. And I think when your child experiences it, it, it's, it hits different. Yeah, imagine. Um, so for me, it's the continued education of my children about what it means to be black, um, what it means to be really proud of who you are and where you've come from, what it means to really appreciate the color of your skin and we have that conversation all the time and it forms part of their affirmations as well, where we, we, we say it every night. And I love it when my daughter says it, she's so bold when she says it, you know, oh. she, says she's, she says, I'm brave, I'm beautiful, my skin is beautiful. Um, and she will say her name, that she is who she is. And, and that's, that's very important for you to instill in, 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 in little ones. Because if you don't, when, somebody challenges who they are and says something derogatory about who they are or the color of their skin, it will send a different message to their brain. And I want them to know from now on that when those negative noises come, they can easily, um, well, as best as they can, get rid of it because of what I've instilled in them. Um, and of course my husband, so I don't say I, because before he gets upset, what we have <laughs> Yeah. about who they are uh, and to be yeah. grateful um for being born the way that they are born oh how great i mean when you talked about so you know the, the tangible aspects of culture like you know the food the cult the uh you know outfits music etc that's all things that yeah you can show your kids and like you say you know this is what we do whatever but that instilling that sense of confidence do you think that's just something that you really wanted to pass to your children or is, is that something within like the Nigerian people that sense of pride in where they come from is, is that you know something it that you find like in Nigeria in common in like you know families yeah I, I, I think you know every single Nigerian that I know absolutely love our culture and our heritage oh. um yes nigeria is not where we should be at all at all in terms of infrastructure healthcare, um you know just basic basic amenities that humans should have we are nowhere there but one thing that you will never take away from nigerians is the happiness and the pride in who we are where we come from and our culture it's just beautiful you can see the lady behind me my painting even has a nigerian outfit on with a headpiece and um, for me culture is very important and um, just being able to have that other aspect to you that speaks through your history um it's just wonderful and 
when I was a little young, I can't remember how old I was now, I asked my mum if she could take us to where, sort of, uh, where my dad's from, because I've never been there before. And I remember when she took us there, I thought, wow, this is completely different to the north, but it was good for you to actually see where your town is, because you have towns, but most people don't, haven't been there. So, you know, like when your, your dad's from, say, mm. somewhere in India, but not yeah. India, India. Do you get what I'm saying? But you've never, yeah. been there. you've never been there, but you would like to know where they came from. And for me, that was a beautiful experience to actually see that even though my dad never lived there and he probably only visited the place once, the point is that is where the history of his name and where his grandfather and great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandfather came from it is such a beautiful thing to follow through. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and that level of confidence in a child so young to, I can only imagine the, the beautiful things that your daughter and your son will end up doing as they grow older. And I'm sure you're very excited to see, um, to see what they turn into for sure. Um, so that's sort of the cultural aspect. And I'm really trying to not make this podcast about law, even though I'd absolutely love to. But <laughs> <laughs> I do really want to talk to you or ask you about diversity and inclusion. That seems to be a buzzword, a buzz phrase. Uh, firstly, what, what is your relationship like with that phrase? Is it something you're sick of or do you think it's something that we still need to you know, push and say again and again? Because I, I feel like that, that's a controversial topic in itself. I don't, I don't mind those words. And I, I just mind the, um, if there's lack of action behind it. Right. Um, so there's a difference between saying that, oh, um, our organisation is diverse and inclusive. Um, but then when somebody says they want to leave early to go and pick up their child, you have an issue with that. Right. Yeah. So there is, you know, a lot of organizations, or I won't generalize, shall I say, some organizations use it, but they don't actually follow through with it. Uh, some use it in the sense where, oh yeah, we have a few black, Chinese, African, whatever people in our organizations, but don't actually think about the separation of the words itself so you can't just say our firm is diverse you've got to think about well is it inclusive yeah so if I'm a working mum can I say to you without feeling that I'm going to be judged or my chances of promotion is going to go down if I say well actually uh, I've got to drop my kid off at school so therefore I won't start work at 9 30. Well, if you have an issue with that, then clearly you're not inclusive. If you're having an event and you say, oh, well, well the event will be at uh, 8.30 in the morning, a breakfast meeting. Well, 90% of the time, the people who will be there will be men because a lot of the women have caring responsibilities. If it's a breakfast meeting, well, why is 10.30 not okay? You know, if I have special dietary requirements and... Uh, I can't eat certain foods, say pork, for example, but then you're having a work lunch party and everything that's there is ham sandwich or pork sandwich or whatever. Again, that's you not thinking through. Oh. You have Muslim employees, where they're going to pray. Have you ever thought about the fact that they pray five times a day? Um, mm. Are you creating a space where they can actually say, right, well, that room is for prayers. Do you have... People who have just come back from maternity leave who are still breastfeeding. 
Do you have somewhere where they can use to express the milk without feeling uncomfortable that somebody's going to walk in on them? Those are the little things that we don't sure. think about. It's really as subtle as that. Well, I, I say subtle, but but not really subtle because that's your everyday life. You know, if you're a mum, you need to breastfeed your child. That's not subtle. That's probably the main thing in your day. Um, Absolutely. You know? And those are the little things that people don't think about. Um, uh, and, and that's where we really have to be. It's not just the let's get lots of people of colour on our website. And, and that's where I struggle with the whole conversation that's going on online at the moment about, well, if I open a firm's website and everybody there's white, I'm not going to apply there. Well, um, I don't really agree with that. And I know that everybody's allowed to have their views. Um, but when I applied you know, to firms, there was nobody that looked like me there. And I didn't think that I won't apply there because there's nobody that looked like me. I went with the view that I will apply there, I will be the first, and I will pave the way for every other person who looks like me to come in. And I think that is a narrative that we probably need to put away, that because a firm all looks white, that means you shouldn't apply there. Right. You might just be what the firm needs to be able to buck up that, their ideas. and know that you shouldn't be the one that does all the work, but sometimes you need people to help shake things up, especially if you have a lot of dinosaurs in organisations that don't want things to change. Well, that, that kind of brings me kind of onto my next question, which is, so firms can make the active decision to say, okay, how am I going to make my employees' lives easier, you know, taking into account childcare, food, diet requirements, etc. But what about from the other side, so as the employee, especially for someone who's, you know, a bit more junior, doesn't have much more say in the managerial side of it, how do they, you know, like someone like me, how can I bring that up without, you know, being scared of what, the repercussions could be or how I would be perceived as maybe, I don't know, overstepping my mark a bit. What um, advice if would you, you have ideas, uh, this is how I see it. If you see that, remember you being a part of a, an organization, you essentially represent that organization. And if you want um, your organization to change and to thrive, you have to be able to share your ideas with people that you trust that you have HR managers, you've got your direct supervisor before you then go to the managing partner or, or whatever to say what you're thinking. Now, I'm a creative. I've always been. Um, and throughout when I was a trainee or whatever and I had ideas, I would always go and tell them that actually this is what I'm thinking. Should we have a newsletter that talks about what we're doing as a firm? You know, all of us, what we like, what we don't like, so that people can see the human side of us. Um, and sometimes my ideas are shut down. There's so many times when my ideas have been shut down. Yeah. There, there's so many times, that, that's why the thing I posted recently, I said, you know, there are times when my wings were clipped basically. And I was told to, you know, just kind of put that there. That's not, that's not what we're talking about at the moment. You know, you have to fear and you have to do this. But I always say that it is not just about you sitting behind your desk to make money for an organization. There is a massive business case for diversity and inclusion. When you have different people um, working within an organization, um, a lot of research has shown that that actually creates more profitability and you will get more out of your people as well. So when you have all these ideas, 
in, about how things can change in your organization, I would say write them down. You're not going to be saying it in a derogatory way to say, well, your firm is crap. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're not doing it. No. It's ideas that you're bringing. Actually, this is what I think we should do to make the firm more, uh, you know, open to these types of people or open to these types of people or to make the employees feel more, you know, welcome and appreciated and, and things like that. When I joined my current firm, I had lots of ideas. Yes, even though I was how many years PQB when I joined them, I had lots of ideas and I would go to them and say, listen, I, I, I've been thinking about this. I think we should do this. I think we should do this. But the beauty about that is I had very supportive people sort of in HR and things like that. Oh, wow, that's a good idea. Yes, I think we should do that and things like mm -hmm. that. And it's about making that business case for how it will benefit everybody in the firm so that they can know that it's not just you. And sometimes they say, well, if you're, made, if you're suggesting it, then you can be the driving force. And I say, well, that's fine, but providing you, 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 and you support me, then yes, we can do it. Yeah. And that's how ideas mm -hmm. work. It's like what we're doing at the moment about in our firm for mental health um, for everybody. My colleague Simone Kent and uh, Gemma Riley thought about an idea where we can all escape from work and on a monthly basis we go for a walk and we go to different, you know, different, explore different parts of the Northeast. And this is something that they thought about and they put it to the firm as a good thing for the well being of everybody in the firm, where each month, an email will come round, we'll say where we want to go, and then people can decide whether they want to come or not. So the first one was last, was it last month? No, it wasn't last month, it was this month, where we did a 10-mile walk and did the three uh -huh. peaks. Uh -huh. Now, oh, amazing. I, do walk, I do not walk, but I did it. Yeah. I went with them and I did it because I wanted to do something different. But that's an idea that they had that they thought about together and then they put it to everybody in the firm as this is good for all of us yeah and that's how i would say the young lawyers need to do things because simone is one year pqe but she has lots of ideas about how to help people at the firm especially with mental health and well-being um she's gonna be a mental health first aider and just she made a case to the firm about why this is important to the firm so it's taking and initiative. That's, that's where you need to come from. That it's something of benefit to every single person that works at the firm and also for our clients. You know, if your client sees that your firm is embracing of every single person, whether black, white, gay, straight, Jewish, it doesn't matter. You will find that your client base will also be from a diverse pool and people will always recommend you because, oh, that firm, yes, I remember them. They've got that lawyer who does this. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, there is a massive business case for it. There's a people case for it. There's a benefit to everybody. Your employers you know, will benefit. The employees are more productive. They feel that they've been listened to. They feel that they're part of a system and it's just being not just as I say diverse, but also being inclusive where people feel that they are actually part of something bigger. That's amazing. And I love the idea of going for a walk, something as simple as that. You know, everyone can go out and walk. And I guess the benefits are endless, mental health, team bonding. That's right, um, yeah. Fostering a, uh, a culture within your own firm. 
but it just took those two to sit down, think about it, work it out, and then say, actually, we're going to put it to all of you and see what you think. And you you then get that buy-in. Yeah. You know, I mean, it shouldn't, it should be a no-brainer. It shouldn't be, you know, diversity and inclusion should not be something that people are like, all right, okay, we're going to buy into that. Yeah, this feels like a good idea. But I know that as a junior lawyer, you probably think, oh my God, if I say this, are they going to take it the wrong way? Are they going to think I'm being disparaging of the firm, et cetera? But remember, some of the things you're thinking, they're probably thinking it as well, but because they're so set in their ways, and some of them, in terms of people who have been qualified for such a long time, they don't want to change. I remember many moons ago, I, you know, you, you had some lawyers who, when the family procedure rule came in, and we had to change the way we do the draft orders, yeah. some lawyers yeah. just would not change, and they would continue to draft orders in the old ways, despite the fact that we've got all these new precedents that we can use. But it took them so long to be able to move because they are so set in their ways until the courts actually decided that they weren't going to accept any orders. They're not like the old form anymore. That's when they had no choice. Um, and that's how you've got to do it. You actually do not have a choice because you will continue to lose good people. Yeah. You don't give people the opportunity to be themselves at work. So if somebody is a practicing Muslim and decides that they want to wear, um, you know, a hijab or, or, or um, what's the other one? The, a burqa. A, nikab, a, burqa, a nikab, yeah, work, burqa. That's fine. Yeah. Don't look at them and, oh, oh what, what are you doing? Just allow them if somebody wants to wear a cross to work, let them do it. Just let people be who they are. Because remember, when you start to create a restriction around what people cannot, cannot do, you're stripping away from them some parts of their identity so when they're coming into work they're not actually fully being themselves right and then it kind of asks the question well then why would you interview them in the first place because if you're exactly right. my point exactly and that's where sometimes some firms fall short because they're more about the aesthetic oh, okay let's look diverse let's all look that let's just look diverse yeah 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 let's look diverse rather than be diverse exactly for sure well, speaking yeah. about interviews, what would you say, like, say you were in an interview from both from both sides, an interviewer and an interviewee, you know, if you were attending, um, so, say, so say you were giving an interview, you were um, say applying for a job or whatever, um, and you wanted to ask about the firm or the company, corporation, startup, wherever it is, um, about their diversity and inclusion and say, you know, you ask them and they roll off statistics. But then you think, okay, great. I can, but I saw that on your website. But but tell me, how how actually are you diverse? How are you inclusive? Like, how, how do you bring that up without just you know, basically saying it how I just said it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just asking questions, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard somebody say, well, what's your policy on people being able to sort of leave early, um, yeah, because of childcare yeah. and things like that. And the answer was, well, it's fine. You can log in at any point, you know, when you get home, it's, it's absolutely fine. Um, and it's just been that honest. And I think that's the answer you need when, as in, in terms of that question, when the answer comes and it's not what you want to hear or you don't take the view that these people are not being genuine, then red flags should come up really. Yeah. You have to be able to ask questions, remember, any organization you go to, people don't go to 
work somewhere in the with the view to oh I'm going to leave after one day or I'm going to leave after one week you look at the long term okay maybe this is somewhere I would like to stay for a few years and see how it goes but you need to be able to ask all the questions that you want to ask during the interview right yeah. for me I think it's very important because if you don't ask and then you start work and you find that a lot of things don't align with what you were looking for then you have a problem right if you start and you did ask the question but then they change their minds whilst you're working with them and they're not actually following through with all the things that they say they do again you have a problem I, I, you know then you know that they just said it because they just want to get you in sure but being sure. asking genuine questions um when i went for my interview for example i said time recording i don't want to be pressured about it yeah i just want to get on and do my job yeah i don't want anybody to be emailing me saying you haven't done five hours chargeable time or whatever it is i just don't just let me get on with my job i'm not a child for starters i'm a grown woman i know how to manage my time and I know that I have to build clients, so you don't worry about that. I don't need anybody to email me or tell me anything because where I used to work before, I was never pressured about it. Just get on with your job. As long as you're doing your job and you're happy, that was it. Yeah. And I made that very clear. Wow. When I'm wow. going to do that, I don't want to be pressured about time recording. And I remember asking again, even before I took the job, um, I'm sure they won't mind me saying it. I, I I did it again. I got the HR manager to confirm it in writing that they won't be disturbing me about time recording. Good for you. That's and and those are the things. Those are the things that mean something to me, because I know how that pressure, that work is already high pressure anyways. What we do dealing with families at very difficult times of their lives. I don't then want to be getting emails saying, oh, well, you haven't recorded five hours. Well, I may not have. It may just be because I was at court all day and I never got around to actually time record the work I did. Sure. Um, so it's things that are important to you that you've got to raise during your interview to actually ascertain whether or not that place is indeed the place for you. Right. And I haven't been chased about that time recording because if they do, they know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> But also it must be, you know, they know they have a trust in you and the way you work and the results that you provide to show that they don't need to chase you because, mm. you know, you said you'd please own. I don't, I don't need anyone chasing me about time recording, but I will do the work because, you know, I'm good for it. I can do it. I'm a good lawyer, clearly. And it, and it works. So yeah. it's a two way relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So just, you know, just going to an interview, being clear on, you know, you've already done your research about the firm, you know what they stand for, you've seen, you know, information about them. If they're things that are important to you, uh, that an organization should have, it's easy to say, oh, well, what's your views on diversity and equality? They're probably going to say, well, we have a policy. That's the thing. There's always a policy. Yeah. The policy <laughs> actually in action. Yeah. Questions like, do all employees have to have a diversity and, uh, and inclusion training? And how often do you have that training? Do you collect data about, you know, the diversity of your workforce? Um, if so, how often do you do so? Uh, you know, is there an opportunity uh, for, you know, to train in different areas of law? Is there an opportunity where, you know, 
what sort of you know leeway do you give for a working parent just anything that means something to you that you know will help you to be a better employee ask away and if they don't have the right answer because they genuinely don't have the answer and they say we're going to oh we do have a fault and we're going to work on it then that's different so here's one during my interview they asked me if i had anything else to say and i said well your website isn't very good and that was one thing i wanted them to change and that could have had a backlash by them saying well who are you to tell us our website isn't very good but the response was actually we do know and we are working on it we're trying to get it changed because that's something they knew as well yeah that the yeah. website wasn't good at the time right um, and therefore they were actively trying to change it so think about it the things that you're bringing to the employer is it something that they genuinely know about um and they're looking to change or is it something they know about and they just don't care about changing it yeah now if he had said we know but you know nobody really uses the website anyways we're just going to leave it like that i'm going to have an issue with that and i'm yeah. going to want to probably dig deeper into why and tell them the benefits of having a much better website sure and then it then it tell you as the interviewee is this even if I want to work at then. If yes, they, you know, and are they actually going to listen to you? That's how you know. Is yeah. my own views going to be listened to or are they going to just completely say, uh, yes, we've heard you, but no thanks. Right, 100%. You know? And we had a conversation about the website, the different things that they can do, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's something I'll be more than happy to, you know, help out with. Not that I know anything about websites, but in terms of contents and how we should look, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and that's a way that you can sort of approach things. Great. Oh, thank you so much. What what great um, courage and confidence. I think that's one thing that I've really sort of taken out of that conversation is just to have confidence within yourself. Um, I'm conscious of the time, but I wanted to end this by a quick fire round. So I just wanted mm -hmm. to ask you a few, some, a few fun questions. Um, I want to really base it on... Um, your family, which I um, I know you've spoken to about your family a lot in other podcasts, and we haven't really touched about that much. So a couple of the questions will be on your family, a um, couple on and the Nigerian culture. So yeah, if you're up for it, would you mind playing this game with me? Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, so first question, what is your favorite Nigerian dish? Oh, Lord, everybody's going to laugh at me. I like, it's called Eba. Eba and um, I'll probably say egusi soup. So it's like a soup with vegetables and lots of different types of meat. And the eba sort of looks like, uh, uh, what can I compare it to? It's like a big dumpling thing made out of cassava. It's great. It's just mm. great. That's my favorite. You eat it and you kind of fall asleep. It's one of those heavy dishes. Oh. That's, that's the definition of comfort food is if you feel sleepy exactly. after it, then you do a good Real meal comfort food and my my mum and my sisters make the meanest soup honestly oh. i can't even top it but yes that that would be my favorite yeah you got right down the recipe sure um next question what's the, the most memorable or sort of important thing that you've learned from your parents um so from my dad, I would say it's the, 
oh, he's funny. It's the work ethic to always keep going and to never give up, I would say. To never, never, never give up and to keep going, no matter how many times like, life knocks you down. Um, and from my mum too, it's pretty much uh, the same thing. But she also always says that you must always, always put God first in everything that you do. Um, so whatever it is that she wants to do or we want to do, you tell her, you would, she, she does the whole, I'm taking it to Jesus type of thing. She's going to pray yeah. for you. <laughs> so yes, is you know, having faith in yourself, working hard and just going for it. Um, next question, post, you know, complete lockdown, whatever that may be, and, you know, when the world's a bit safer and we can all travel a bit, where's, where's the one country you really want to go and visit and why? Country? Hmm. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really uh, a travelling person because it's more stressful with the children. Honestly, I'm being honest. Yeah. It's so stressful. So... Um, <laughs> If you asked me before I had children, I would tell you that I want to go to Dubai. Ah, oh, lovely. But now, now that I've got kids, they really want to go to um, Disneyland. So I would probably say Disneyland in Florida. For the, for the kids? Yeah, right. just for the kids. <laughs> I'll ask you in a few years when they're older and, you know, you can go again. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you again. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um... <laughs> If I was to travel to Nigeria, say next year, what were like the top three things you would tell me to visit or do? Right, you have to go to Abuja. I haven't been to Nigeria for years now, don't get me wrong, so I don't know certain places anymore. But you've got to go to Abuja, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, the um, federal government is there. Lagos, I've only been to Lagos once, I think. Um, no, twice, and I really enjoyed it. So that's where to go. But I would say my all-time favorite, where my husband took me to, is a place called Oluma Rock in Abelkuta. It is a beautiful tourist attraction, wonderful, wonderful rocks. You can get to the top of the rock and you can actually see the entire um, Abelkuta state. So yes, I would uh -huh. say you need to go there. Mm -hmm. Okay, now same question, but instead of Nigeria, if I was to go to Darlington, <laughs> what are the top three things you would tell me to do? <laughs> um oh in Darlington one of the top three things oh, okay. visit you at BHP Law that's what <laughs> of course one. you must definitely. visit BHP Law definitely, definitely to come and have some lunch with me and my fellow partners and, and my colleagues um probably take you to yeah no you don't drink do you drink I, I drink yeah Right, right, okay. I will take you to the um, Quaker Gin Distillery. They've got like a little, Darlington has its own gin uh, and it, it's it's by this couple. Um, and they've, I hear that they've opened like a little gin bar thing where you can have gin tasting sessions and things like that. Um, well, which they've just opened, so I haven't been there. So I would probably say that's one. Um, the second place, well, I've said BHP Law, so that's two. So <laughs> What? This sounds awful. I'm not selling Darlington really well. I'm so sorry, Darlington, but um, yeah, there's some fabulous restaurants that I'll take yeah, you to. Yeah, <laughs> the food. That's always, yeah, food is always a safe bet. And very last question. If you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? I'd be a model, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you are stunning, so. 
thank you. <laughs> but yes, that would be my calling in life, really. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lovely. It's not well, too late. I could I could be the modeling lawyer. So any agents out there, I'm your girl. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's like a new profession. You should you know start that up. <laughs> start the social media campaign. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Amanda, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed myself and I hope you've enjoyed yourself too. I have. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really lovely. And, and yes, thank you. Thank you for giving me the um, the opportunity to speak about, you know, my culture, my heritage and, and what that means to me. So thank you. Great. Thank you very much.